Thank you for taking the time to listen to this message from Stonebridge United Methodist Church. We hope it encourages you to live and love like Jesus. Today's scripture comes from Matthew chapter 14, verse 14 through 21. When Jesus arrived and saw a large crowd, he had compassion for them and healed those who were sick. That evening, his disciples came and said to him, This is an isolated place and it's getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, There's no need to send them away. You give them something to eat. They replied, We have nothing here except five loaves of bread and two fish. He said, Bring them here to me. He ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and he took the five loaves of bread and the two fish, looked up to heaven, blessed them, and broke the loaves apart and gave them to his disciples. Then the disciples gave them to the crowds, and everyone ate until they were full, and they filled twelve baskets with the leftovers. About five thousand men plus women and children had eaten. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And now, would you join me as we pray together? Oh God, we thank you for this day, we thank you for this place, and we thank you for your presence here among us. We pray that you would come now and quiet our our minds, open our hearts to what you have to say to us today. And God, I pray that the words of my mouth are not my own, but that they would be your words for your church. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So today we're in the fifth week of a six-week series that has been called The Life of Resurrection. We say that we are Easter people, that we live as people of resurrection, meaning that the good news that Jesus is alive changes us. But it doesn't end with Easter. It keeps going because Jesus' resurrection is the reason that we're even here at all as Christians, right? And so that's worth celebrating. And so we observe the Easter season technically for 50 days from the time of Easter until Pentecost Sunday, which is coming up in just a few weeks. And so I think it's helpful for us to consider ways that the hope and the joy of Easter inform our lives as followers of Christ. So today, um, I want to focus on growth and specifically how we grow through the things that we do through our actions. So as I was thinking this week about the idea of growth, I was curious, and so what do we do when we're curious? We Google something, right? And so that's what I did. I Googled images of growth, and I scrolled for a long time, and almost every image that came up was either a plant or a chart or bar graph trending upward to the right. Every single image, every one of them. You can do it later and see. Um, And I often like to start messages by hearing from you. Now, I'm not going to ask you what comes to mind um, when you hear the word growth, um, an image, because most of you are going to say something about a plant, and that might be boring after a while. Um, But I am interested in hearing quickly one word that you think describes the idea of growth. So perhaps a synonym. Um, And I'm just, I want to just see if we're tracking, if you and I are tracking in the same way on this. So just shout them out. Tell me what's one word that comes to mind when you hear the word growth. Okay? 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 Okay, I'm hearing learning, I'm hearing age, I'm hearing progress. Those are all great words. A few that I thought of are maturing, developing, progress. So I want to look at the story of one of Jesus' miracles. And interestingly, this is the only miracle story that we find in all four of the Gospels. And so that must mean that it has something to teach us. 
So we're going to look primarily at the version in Matthew 14 that was read just a few minutes ago. Um, So it's important to know what happened right before this passage of Scripture. John the Baptist, who was Jesus' cousin, has been killed by Herod. And so Jesus has withdrawn to what the Bible tells us is a deserted place. But the crowds followed him. They had heard about him. They knew who he was. They knew what he was capable of doing. And so they wanted to be in his presence. And so all of these people, 5,000 plus, began to follow him. Now, I mentioned that the stories in all four Gospels, they're actually all very consistent if you read them side by side, but some of them have different details that the other ones don't offer. And so we're going to walk through it together. I think that this scripture actually creates the perfect framework for a message, and so I'll share elements from from the Gospels of Mark and Luke and John as it's helpful, but I'm going to let the text preach this morning. Um, Jesus sees this huge crowd, and so he has compassion for them. He provides healing to them. He teaches them. Now, keep in mind that he's tired. And also keep in mind that he's grieving. He's grieving. And so he is withdrawn in hopes of having some privacy, in hopes of having a little bit of rest, but he quickly sees that that's not in the cards for this day. Now, he could have easily dismissed all of these people, but as was the hallmark of his ministry, he acted with compassion. Now, if Jesus was tired, then we can assume pretty safely that the disciples would have been very tired. And by evening, they're over it, like they're done, okay? And so they tell Jesus, just send the crowds away and let them do dinner on their own. Now, I think this is a very practical idea because they might have been introverts, and they're tired, right? And so Jesus' response probably shocked them because he says, no, there's no need to do that. You give them something to eat. Now, I want to stop there for a minute and, and unpack that a little bit because I said we, were, we would focus on growth today. And so you might be expecting that I'm going to talk about numeric growth given the premise of this story, that Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fishes. But I want to go down a different road. I'd rather think about the growth that correlates with our actions. A few weeks ago, someone came to me um, and asked me a question about the concept of good works and how that relates to our salvation. And so it occurs to me that it's probably good to address that here right out of the gate before I go any further. And so I want to be very clear that our salvation does not come from what we do. It does not come from what we do. It, It is only by grace through faith in Christ and a free gift of God that we have salvation. We don't earn our salvation. Now that said, if we look in James chapter 2, it tells us that faith without action is dead. And so my response to the person's question was, once we experience salvation, we are called, really we're expected, to do something. Because faith is the ability to believe, but that ability has to be used. It has to be acted upon in order for our faith to come alive for our faith to be at work. Or put differently, our actions unlock the power that resides in our faith. And so it's our faith in Jesus that prompts action that then reveals our belief. And so if we do nothing, our declaration of faith is completely unproductive. It's almost like empty words. But true faith is seen in how we live and love like Jesus as a response to our salvation. 
And so we go back to Jesus' words. You, you give them something to eat. Now, up until this point, he had spent a lot of time with his disciples. He had, he had been teaching them. They had experienced faith for themselves. They had experienced their own connection with God. And so now they're in a situation where other people are in need. And Jesus had equipped them for that moment. And his expectation now is that they do something. Specifically, that they make new disciples. A, dis- a disciple is a follower of Jesus. Now, if you look through these verses, it's interesting to see how many times Jesus puts the ministry back into the hands of the disciples while he watches. And the expectation is the same for us, that we be active participants in ministry, knowing that we are able to do that through the resurrection power of Christ that's in us. And out of love for us, out of a desire for full, of fullness of life for us, God expects growth for us in our own hearts and and souls, which then spills over into the people and the world around us, the things that we interact with. And so if we go back to the text and look at the disciples' response, they say, well, we've only got five loaves of bread and two fish. Now in Mark's gospel, Jesus pointedly tells them, you need to check your resources. He says, what do you have? Again, same invitation for us. We cannot do everything. God does not gift us to do everything. That's why we're called the body of Christ, and we all have a part to play. But we have to check our resources and see what we can do in our ministry. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says, we are created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, my translation of that is this. There's a set of tasks with my name on it. And God planted those seeds in my soul from the time that I was created, and those are mine to do in this life. And the same is true for you. And so then the exciting question becomes, what can God accomplish with what I have? Well, in order to answer that question, we have to bring our resources to Jesus. And so when the disciples tell him what they have, he says, bring them here to me. Bring them to me. And so he waits. He waits until they're ready to commit what they have because their contribution is part of the solution. Now John's gospel mentions that he talks to Philip. Jesus talks to Philip, which was one of his disciples, and he asks him, well, where do you think the food's going to come from? But the text also tells us Jesus is testing him because he already knew. He already knew what he was going to do. And so we have to be ready to place what we have in Jesus' hands, trusting that he will do something greater than we can imagine. And part of that is letting go of control. I think we also need to be mindful about how we view miracles of Jesus. Instead of seeing them as isolated events in history that happened, what if instead we viewed miracles as things that are still happening now? Because the definition of a miracle really is a demonstration of the always and forever present power of Jesus. And we know that that is still here. And so once they've given him what they have, then what does he do? It tells us that he blessed what what they gave him. And he gave them to his disciples. And then the disciples gave them to the crowds. So Jesus takes what we have, he blesses it, and then he gives it back to us, essentially empowering us 
for ministry. We are released at that point to then go and do, knowing that God is at work in and through us. And so what we receive back from him is multiplied. It's more powerful than we could have imagined. But we can't insist that God do all the work without any participation from us. That's, that's just not how it works. And so if we look at the, the Greek translation here, better words might be, he kept on giving them to the disciples. They may have fed people for several hours. This process of breaking and carrying and distributing and then going back to Jesus for more, on and on and on and on for hours. And, and so it is with our lives. Our actions have to continue as we seek growth in our faith, as we seek growth in our relationship with God. And from the very beginning, Jesus tells his disciples, many of whom were fishermen, I'm going to make you something different. His words were, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of people. And so if we go back to those words that I asked you to share or think about that describe growth, as a disciple, that's you and me, followers of Jesus, as a disciple matures spiritually, the Holy Spirit brings about a heart change within us. We move from being self-centered to other-centered. We become God-centered in our motivation to act, and we have the desire to serve and to lead. It's a faith experience. It's a lifelong process of transformation as we continue to cultivate and deepen a growing likeness of Christ. Now, our Wesleyan theology calls this Christian perfection. It's a heart habitually filled with the love of God, love of neighbor, having the mind of Christ, and walking the way Jesus walked. And so you'll often hear United Methodists say something like, we're not there yet, but by the grace of God, we're going on to perfection. And John Wesley believed that perfection was attainable in this life. That's what we're striving for. But it's not always easy. There might be one of these steps that you struggle with as you surrender to a path of growth in your life. Maybe it's assessing what the need is around you. Or maybe you're wondering what you have to offer. What are your gifts? Maybe you struggle a little more with bringing your resources to Jesus and then putting them in his hands and releasing control. Or maybe the tough part for you is receiving back the power to meet needs that are beyond yourself. So if you find yourself in that place, here are a few questions that you can ask that that might be helpful. How do I intentionally seek divine encounters in my life? And then, as you're you're thinking about committing to doing something, how do I expect to grow by doing, and you fill in the blank? It could be a Bible study. It could be volunteering at Malvern Elementary. Some of you were here for the car show yesterday. Whenever you embark on something like that, don't just do it to check a box. But be intentional about asking yourself, how is this going to help me grow? If it's not going to help you grow, then don't do it. And then on the other side, or before you do it, say, what effect will or did that action have on me? Do a little bit of evaluation. Because as we as we lean into, as we learn to trust Jesus, our faith will grow and we'll experience the power and the presence of God in our heart and in our life. And as our faith grows, our works, our actions will flow from that. I want to share a story with you of a time when 
God called me to do something. Now, at the time, I didn't have any idea how important my action would be. I had no idea how powerfully God would move throughout the course of many years. And I've shared this story here years ago, and so for some of you it might be familiar. But the church I was serving at the time began a partnership with a local elementary school, very similar to the one that we have with Malvern Elementary. And so we would send volunteers into the school, and they would partner with students who needed a little bit of extra help. A lot of times these students received little to no help at home, mainly because their parents worked multiple jobs to make ends meet. And so they were left alone after school and and didn't typically have anyone that could help them with their homework. And so it was then that I met Malik, and he was almost done with his third grade year at that point. He lived in an apartment across the street from the school with his mom and his brother Elijah. Elijah was two years younger than him. And their father had been absent for most of their life. When I met him, his reading level was about two years or more behind where he needed to be. And so I became his reading buddy for the year. And the counselor at the school was a friend of mine, and she warned me that he could be moody. And she told me, she said, you're going to have to exercise a lot of patience with him. He gets frustrated very easily, and he does not trust very many adults. So the first time that we met, it was a little uncomfortable. I remember it well. It was, it was a little uncomfortable for both of us because we were two very different people trying to connect in some way. I understood very little about his home life, and he was skeptical of me. He wondered if I could be trusted. And so we began to meet about 45 minutes a week for the rest of the school year. This was in the spring semester. And he gradually became more comfortable with me, and he would start to share things about his family. Occasionally, we would be sitting outside his classroom in the hallway, and his brother Elijah would come walking by with his class, and he would stop and and say hi or wave. And I began to see Malik's reading skills improve. His self-confidence began to improve. And so I committed to be his reading buddy for fourth grade. I told him I would come back the next fall, and so I did. And every, every time I saw him, I always led with, how are things going at home? You know, how are things going here at school? And sometimes we didn't get to the assignment that we were given because we just talked. And I began to realize in those days and weeks and months that he was teaching me new things. And so at the end of fourth grade, he asked me if I would come to his end-of-the-year awards ceremony. Well, of course. So I went. I had the honor and privilege of meeting his mother and being able to visit with her. And he asked me if I would come back in fifth grade and be his reading buddy again. Well, yes. How can I say no to that? And so the first semester of fifth grade went very, very well, but the spring was rough. I arrived one day and was told at the the front desk that he was in detention because he had tried to steal a bike from another student. And the principal was very, very strict. And normally, we would have just been told, that's it, you just need to leave. But she knew I was a pastor. And so she said, I'll give you 10 minutes with him. And so I walked back to a room. He was all alone in a little solitary room, horrified when I walked in. Because he just knew, I think, that I was going to chastise him for what, what he had done. And 
the entire time I had known him, I had never once said anything about God. That wasn't why I was there. I was there just to love him. But that day, in those few minutes, it turned in that direction. Because he looked at me with tears in his eyes, and he said, I don't deserve to be liked by anybody. And I looked at him, and I said, there is a a big God who loves you, a God that created you. And I'll never forget him looking up at me and saying, do you promise? And I gave him a hug, and I said, yeah, I do, I promise. When he finished fifth grade, I was proud that he finished reading on level that year. His mom and I exchanged phone numbers at the end of the year awards ceremony so that we could stay in touch as he began middle school the next year, which we both knew would be a difficult transition for him. That summer, he and Elijah came to our church's vacation Bible school. It was kind of weird to see each other in a different setting. It was that, do I know you and are you supposed to be here kind of moment? But we stayed in touch throughout his sixth grade year and into seventh grade. During that time, I I left that church. I moved on to serve at a new place. And a few days before Christmas of his seventh grade year, that school counselor from the elementary school called me to tell me that his 10-year-old brother had taken his own life. And so I reached out to Malik and to his mother to express my sympathy, and he asked me if I would come to the funeral. And I ended up being one of the, the, the pastors that officiated that service. And Malik asked me when I got there if I would read for everyone the last words that he wrote for his brother, which was my privilege. And then we went to the graveside, and I held him and his mother as they cried, as they said goodbye. And then we went back to the church where there was a reception and he proudly paraded me around and introduced me to his family and his friends that were there. But the story doesn't end there because he went on to be baptized in that church. He went on to serve on mission trips with that youth group. He and I have not talked in a few years. I do have his phone number and I keep a picture of him in my phone to remind me of God's grace and God's goodness. Because my experience with him presented numerous moments that left me with a choice. I could allow those moments to be fleeting encounters or I could allow them to be opportunities for ministry and growth, his and mine. And I put what little I had in Jesus' hands over and over, year after year, There were many days I walked into that school and had no idea what to do with him. I had no idea how to help him, but I saw miracles happen. The end of the story about Jesus and his disciples says that there were exactly 12 baskets left over after everyone had eaten, and I don't think that's insignificant because there were 12 of them. As we allow our faith to be stretched, as we allow our faith to be seen in all that we do, we experience the abundance of God. And God leaves none of us empty-handed. So find a way. Find a way to put your faith into action because it's then that we experience the incredible joy of being a basket bearer 
of Jesus-empowered food to all people. Because God's desire is always, always for hungry people to be fed, literally and spiritually, always. And remember Jesus' words. He said you, meaning me and you. You give them something to eat. We're always dependent upon God, of course. That's why the Holy Spirit was sent when Jesus left the disciples, but he leads us to growth, to become spiritually mature disciples who are able to make more disciples. And we're disciples today because that's worked. Some of you might be familiar with um, a spiritual retreat weekend called the Walk to Emmaus. There's a youth version that's called Chrysalis. I became an active part of that community when I was 15 years old. As a part of that experience, every person is given a cross. And on the back side of the cross, it says, Christ is counting on you. And so when those crosses are given, those words are said, and the person receiving it says, and I'm counting on Christ. I'm actually wearing that cross today. Those are powerful words, powerful words that have stuck with me through many, many years because it's a reminder that it's a both-and situation. It's not either or. That yes, God is the source of the gifts, but the actions are ours to do. So I'm going to invite you, even if if you're watching at home, I'm going to invite you to do this with me today. I'm going to say my part, and then you're going to say your part back to me, okay? Christ is counting on you. Y'all can do better than that. We're going to do it again. Christ is counting on you. Friends, the good news is that God is gracious. God is gracious. Our efforts will always be honored. They'll always be used. They will always be magnified by Jesus. And so what do we expect him to do? To go a step further with that, what do we expect Jesus to do through us? Let's not just be bystanders and miss out on the ministry that God has for us, but instead let's count it a joy. Let's count it a joy to be a participant in the great things that God is doing. Because Christ is indeed counting on us. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonebridge United Methodist Church. You are invited to worship with us every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more information, visit our website, mysumc.org. Have a blessed day.